0: Tuning into Solanira, a series from Les Delices that brings together musicians from around the world to share music, stories, and scholarship with a global audience of early music lovers. I'm Solanira's executive producer, Deborah Nagy, and this is the first episode of our fourth season, Celestial Soundtrack. For this episode, we've invited violinist and Solanira associate producer, Shelby Yaman, to guest curate this episode in which we'll explore some connections between music and the cosmos. Shelby has brought together some very special guests for this episode. Charlie Weaver is one of North America's finest lute players and a professor at the Juilliard School. He's also an expert on Renaissance music theory. Juan Laura began playing the violin at age six and studied and performed seriously through college, but found himself fascinated by astronomy. Today, he is a professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Yale, where he researches planetary atmospheres with a particular interest in Titan, a moon of Saturn. Cellist Leonie Adams joins us from her home in Slough, England, where she has been immersed in recording the musical works of astronomer William Herschel with her group, the Dionysus Ensemble. Music and space might seem like strange bedfellows to us in the 21st century, but they were inextricably linked in the minds of theorists and composers throughout the Middle Ages, Renaissance, and into the early modern period. The ancient Roman philosopher Boethius believed that arithmetic and music together exemplified the fundamental principles of order and harmony in the universe, such like concepts around the music of the spheres. From the ratios between frequencies that create musical intervals to alchemical thinking about order in the natural world, influenced theorists and musicians across the ages from Pythagoras to Purcell to Mozart, Hindemith, and countless others. We'll even talk about several astronomer musicians in this episode. For one, Galileo Galilei, the late Renaissance scientist, inventor, and astronomer, played the lute just like his father Vincenzo and his brother Michelangelo. Not only did Galileo publish music, but his lute playing was said to have influenced or inspired some of his experiments, laying the groundwork for new theories and discoveries. The 18th century astronomer and oboist and violinist William Herschel also came from a musical family, but gravitated towards science. He ultimately became the official court astronomer to King George III and settled in Slough, England, where, together with his sister Caroline, he built a 40-foot telescope that enabled his discovery of Uranus and infrared light. Along the way, Shelby, Charlie, Juan, and Leonie will consider current thinking and continued curiosity about sound in space. Over to you, Shelby.
1: Welcome, Charlie and Juan. It's so great to have you both here. Deborah just gave us a little bit of um, an intro to this episode, and she touched on the concept of music and the spheres. But Charlie, I was hoping you could lay a little bit of groundwork for us about these, this way of thinking.
2: Sure. Thanks for inviting me on to talk about this, one of my favorite subjects. So the idea of the music of the spheres has been very influential throughout the history of Western music beginning with the ancient Greeks. Uh, The idea seems to have first been formulated by the semi-mythical philosopher Pythagoras, who was a philosopher in the sense of someone who studied the nature of being, but also kind of a scientist, a mathematician, but also the the kind of creator of this movement, this mystical movement of uh, something like a combination of science and religion. So in Pythagoras's view, the central feature of the universe is that it is made of number. And in particular, the universe is an ordered place. It's a place of great uh, beauty and natural order. And the order can be expressed as relationships between numbers. And when we expand this out to the cosmic realm, the different planets in this conception, uh, the seven planets, including the moon and the sun, sort of orbiting around the Earth in the, in the older way of thinking about astronomy, these planets relate to each other uh, in their distances in ways that are rational and express this sort of ordered cosmos and it turns out that music is also made of number in a very similar way so any combination of musical sounds can be expressed as a ratio so the idea of the music of the spheres is that that proportionality between the planets that extends in this chain of being between the creator and humanity can be thought of as Uh, an ordered series of numbers. And as these planets are orbiting around the Earth, they're creating sounds, because, of course, it stands to reason that anything moving so quickly must make a sound uh, in the kind of ancient conception. And the sounds they produce must be a beautiful kind of cosmic symphony. And this idea gets passed down into the Western tradition, primarily through the works of Plato and Cicero, And in Cicero's version, musicians on Earth are replicating the consonances that exist between the planets. And by doing so, they're able to achieve immortality and to ascend after this earthly life is over into this kind of cosmic realm. Uh, So there's this deep sense of resonance between the music we listen to, the music of the planets, and mediating between those two the music of the human body, which is the sort of middle microcosm between the the things of heaven and, and the things of earth. So uh, Deborah mentioned in the introduction Boethius, who himself wrote this kind of great compilation of ancient Greek music theory, and his Boethius's book was the the standard textbook on music theory right down until the 17th and 18th centuries. And in that book, he expresses this this connection between cosmic music, human music, and the music of sounds.
1: In talking about how music, music and musicians were thinking about the connection to the cosmos and music of the spheres, was this a sentiment that was shared by scientific communities
3: at the time, too. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, so Charles mentioned um, Pythagoras, of course, but many of the Greek philosophers had conceptions, you know, of of cosmology, basically, our, our place in the in the universe and how the universe is is structured. And um, again, Charles mentioned uh, the geocentric model, where Earth is in the center and everything else revolves around that. Um, but that was taken, you know, quite literally, and observations um, of the sky, you know, with w- where you can see, for example, the sun uh, rising and setting, and the stars rising and setting, uh, led to these these conceptions of the of the universe as being set up um, with these spheres around the earth, and these spheres had relationships to each other, exactly as Charles was describing, you know, in these in these models and these conce- conceptions. Um, uh, you know, and the spheres would would turn in different ways uh, to explain basically the motion of the different um, of the different things that we see in the sky, like the stars and the planets and all this. And it became a really complicated thing. Um, Aristotle, in particular, had this concept of uh, of uniform circular motion. I think is what is what he called it. And, and uh, so basically, everything that was heavenly was thought to be perfectly circular, perfectly spherical, and that sort of thing. And um, and, and with these ideas, uh, you know, again, the, the model of cosmology at the time was um, became, became increasingly complicated, but it always involved these sort of uh, concentric spheres related to each other, in some, in some cases, you know, circles, and these things called epicycles, again, to, to, to explain what we observed in the universe, which is a very, very uh, scientific, you know, uh, way to approach things. Uh, but it's a it, it was a, a worldview very much based around these uh, you know these cosmic spheres
1: well you made the transition here pretty easy for me um so in talking about you know observing these spheres and trying to make sense of things we're going to jump forward quite a bit to galileo and um in a minute we'll hear charlie play a piece by michelangelo galilei But um, in the meantime, Charlie, could you introduce the first piece that we'll hear?
2: Uh, The Galilei family was a rather large family of uh, lutenists and composers and scholars of music. The father of Galileo, Vincenzo Galilei, was himself rather well known as a music theorist. And Galileo himself, Uh, also composed music and probably played the lute, although we don't really have much of a record of that. But his brother Michelangelo was probably the best composer of the bunch, at least in my opinion. And he's writing music right at the beginning of the 17th century, a time of, of course, great discovery in science, but also a time of great stylistic change in music. So the toccata that I'm going to play is a perfect example of this kind of abstract style of music. Prior to this time, most of what the lute did was to play dance music so people could dance, or to accompany singing, or perhaps to play arrangements of pieces that had been conceived vocally. But this new generation around 1600 was interested in ways that music could express things without using words, without resorting to, to that kind of external purpose. And so the toccata is a piece, it literally just means touched. It's something that you, you touch the instrument and then out comes this music. And the music of this era is specifically designed to move the affect of the listener to create these these kind of kinds of resonance in the listener similar to the resonance that exists between the heavens and the the sounds of music so by by playing specific harmonies and uh, galilei is quite adventurous in this regard some of the harmonies are quite dissonant and interesting by using these harmonies he's able to create a connection with the listener, and uh, create hopefully a mood uh, that uh, you, listening to my performance, will also feel. So I'll be able to communicate through this abstract media medium of music, which is itself very mathematical, uh, to to create kind of resonances with your emotional state. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Charlie, for that beautiful performance. You mentioned that this Boethius um, text was used as the primary teaching source throughout, this would be throughout the Galilee's education. And so how much of that Boethius mindset and, and uh, text would, would have been considered in the Galilee family or in Michelangelo in his writing and in his, I guess, musical education?
2: We, I don't think we have enough, You know about enough information about Michelangelo to really know for certain, but certainly the the idea of the music of the spheres. uh, Well, I mean, a better example even than the Galilei family is the Galileo's great contemporary astronomer Johannes Kepler, whose entire uh, output of astronomical work is is designed musically. Much of the motivation behind Kepler's discovery of of the laws of planetary motion, which we still learn in physics class, was motivated by his search for the music of the spheres. And and by music of the spheres, he literally means proportions existing in some way um, in the planets. And the version that he sort of settles on in the end is that the real music of the spheres has to do with the ratio uh, between the minimum and maximum speeds as each particular planet orbits. And uh, all these various ratios and changing speeds creates this kind of cosmic symphony that is perfect. So even though the heliocentric model has replaced the geocentric one, that did not mean that the idea of cosmic proportion or its relationship to music had changed. And certainly the, the same must be true for the Galilei family. Uh, Galileo himself uh, corresponded with Kepler. So many of these ideas, uh, even within this family of, of kind of extreme empiricists and rationalists would have continued to have great importance.
3: Just building of, uh, on, on, again, what, what Charles was just saying, especially about Kepler, um, you know, he was motivated, basically, in continuation of the things we were discussing earlier, from from uh, from the ancients, basically, through through the the you know the time that, that he was living, um, and so took incredibly precise astronomical measurements that allowed him to 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 uh, I mean to generate these the, the laws of planetary motion, uh, which again revealed that the orbits of the planets. Um, are not circular, right? They're elliptical, and that's what leads to these slight differences in speed. So, so again, you know, he, he was really trying to understand um, how the motions of the planets relate to each other, um, and in so doing, basically revolutionized astronomy. Um, so it's a it's a beautiful connection.
1: I'd love to talk now about the the patriarch of the Galilei family, Vincenzo. My impression of Galileo's musical upbringing is that he was very involved in the experiments that his father was doing and very um, aware of all this experimentation, even though he himself didn't make a name for himself as a loop player. So I'm wondering if you can bring us into Vincenzo's work a little bit.
2: Sure, so Vincenzo seems to have shared Galileo's sort of cantankerous streak, but one kind of overarching theme of Vincenzo's theory is that he wants to replace the appeal to authority with a reliance on empirical observation. So one of the things about the music of the spheres is that it goes back to Pythagoras, who we've already spoken about. According to the old story, Pythagoras is walking along one day, probably contemplating the heavens or who knows, whatever Pythagoras thought about. But he happens across a forge where uh, a group of blacksmiths is smelting something and he notices that the the sounds produced by the hammers hitting the anvils create are creating pleasant musical consonances and so according to the story Pythagoras uh, confiscates the hammers and runs a series of experiments on them and discovers that there's a proportionality between the weights of the hammers and the musical sounds that would be produced between them. The problem with this experiment is that it doesn't work. You can't take a hammer that's twice as heavy as another hammer and just assume that it's going to make a sound an octave lower. Uh, It it works well for string lengths and it works well for for, uh, organ pipes, but it does not work well for hammers. But this story had such kind of importance in the medieval mind that no one bothered to check it until Vincenzo came along and decided that there's actually not such a clear relationship. And uh, so he sort of turned the, the experiment into a different experiment involving weights on strings. So previously, we had strings of different length, and we talked about the relationship between them. Now you have to imagine strings of the same length but you're hanging different weights from the end of them. And according to the Pythagorean model, a weight that's twice as heavy as another weight should produce a pitch that's an octave lower. But when you actually run the experiment, as Vincenzo Galilei did, he discovered that you actually need a weight four times the weight of the other weight to create a sound an octave lower, that actually the proportionality is not between weight and musical ratios, but between the weight and the square of the musical ratios, which, of course, is very similar to Galileo Galilei's discoveries about uh, the laws of gravitation. So his Galileo observing this, it's very much in the theme of let's not rely on authority. Let's not uh, take what scholastic writers of the Middle Ages had to say about really any physical uh, phenomenon, whether it's dynamics or cosmology. Instead, let's rely on our own observation, which of course is a, a foundational pillar of the what we would consider the modern approach to science.
3: His father's influence, just in the sense of, of um... Being an empirical, an empirically based thinker, rather than someone who follows authority, um, was really critical. I mean, we talked about some some interesting examples already, but but a really famous one, of course, is that is his defense of the of the Copernican heliocentric model, which got him in a huge amount of trouble. Right? I mean, the so he he was. Um, I mean, I think he he lived under house arrest for for a long time, uh, because it was against the teachings of the church at the time. Uh, but he basically stuck to it. Um, And of course that was based on on the empirical evidence at the time.
1: As we prepare to listen to this next piece, Charlie, you mentioned earlier that Michelangelo was more forward-thinking in his musical contributions. How does his music embody this approach that his brother showed in his astronomy and his father showed in his um, experiments with the strings?
2: Sure, well, uh, one aspect of the lute is that it can play multiple voices at one time. Unlike, uh, you know, uh, an oboe or the violin, most of the time is just playing a single melody. And, of course, the lute, like the like various keyboard instruments, is, is capable of playing multiple melodies at once. And in the older model, in the 16th century, this is usually done by uh, adapting pieces that were conceived as polyphonic vocal works um, and playing them on the lute. In, in that way of thinking, the lute is sort of like the 16th century version of the iPod. If you want to hear, uh, hear a piece of music and you don't have, say, the resources to assemble a choir so that you can listen to it, one way that you can hear it is to uh, arrange it for the lute and then play it for yourself. And that's Vincenzo wrote an entire book about how you go about doing that. Michelangelo, uh, being in the next generation, is much more interested in using the, the texture of the lute uh, in a more kind of creative way. So in this next piece we'll listen to, it's a, a dance piece but it's not necessarily the kind of dance that you would uh, dance along to. It's more just for listening or enjoyment in that way. But on the repeated sections of this piece, Michelangelo does interesting things with the capability of the lute to play different notes. So he creates this kind of uh, texture in the music where the bass and the middle voices and the melody are kind of woven together in a way that is unique to the lute. And the style actually came to be called the the lute style or the broken style. In French, we would say style brise. And it was a real hallmark of the 17th century. And I think these dance pieces by Galilei are a fantastic early example of that style so this is a dance of volta uh, which is just basically an italian dance of the period Uh, also from that same collection by michelangelo the the book from 1620 where where all of his compositions are gathered
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Solanira, guest curated by Shelby Yaman and featuring Juan Laura, Leonie Adams, and Charlie Weaver. Shelby has been Solanira's associate producer since the series' start and a frequent artistic collaborator. With your support, we can continue to collaborate with such engaging artists from across the country and around the world. You can support Salonira by subscribing to this podcast and by donating at salonira.org. Your donations make every episode possible. Thanks again for supporting Les Delices and Salonira by listening and subscribing to this podcast.
1: So, we were just speaking about Galileo and how his musical. Um, life kind of influenced, possibly influenced his career as an astronomer. And now we're going to speak about another astronomer who had a musical background, William Herschel. And I'd like to welcome Leonie Adams. I'd love to ask you first, how did you become so involved in um, working with Herschel's music?
4: Well, it's interesting. I live in Slough in the UK and William Herschel is actually buried about three minutes walk from where I'm currently sitting. Um, His bicentenary was last year, he died on the 25th of August 1822. And so there was a lot of excitement in the town about the upcoming bicentenary. And there was a lot of talk about what the town was going to do to celebrate this um, local legend. And somebody in 2021 mentioned to me, oh, well, of course, you know who is a musician. And I sort of went, what, really, who? I don't know anything about this. And so I got really interested in what music he'd written and what was still out there and, and what hadn't made its way into the public domain. So I contacted the Herschel Society, who put me in touch with Alex voice, who had uh, photographed huge amounts of manuscripts, um, handwritten manuscripts of Herschel's, and I then um, asked him to typeset a few bits and pieces for us, which we've then recorded. So we did two um, harpsichord trio sonatas last year for the Bicentenary and this set of notionally 12, I'll talk about this in a minute, a um, viol- solo violin sonatas, although they're with cello, I'll talk also about that in a minute, um, uh, which have just been released this year, um, uh, also on his anniversary as a celebration.
1: I know that Herschel it has such a legacy as an astronomer in the scientific community, is he also known as a musician, or has that just kind of been
2: um,
1: overshadowed by his other accomplishments?
3: Yeah, I would say in the scientific community, but of course, the astronomical community, it's been completely overshadowed. <laughs> Again, if you if you dig a little bit, uh, as as we just heard, um, it's it's pretty obvious that he had quite a, an interesting career in music. But um, but he just made so many huge contributions to astronomy that that's that's what we remember, of course.
4: Even in the musical community. He's known as an astronomer. He's not known as a musician, so um, this is this is new to vast swathes of the musical community too.
3: I, I mean, he made so many incredible um, contributions. To be honest, it's uh, yeah, it's it, it's a it's an amazing thing to completely switch careers and do something like that. In in a way, it's it's similar to what we were just discussing uh, about Galileo, in the sense that I think empiricism really guided a lot of what he was interested in, um, and. Um, you know he he was uh he was interested in in a number of things um and you know that that could only be done really by by even making his own tools for example so i mean this is a famous example of course but he he basically was was doing was making his own his own telescopes and they were kind of an unusual type of telescope so again we talked earlier about Galileo who's who was who's famous for having turn telescopes to the heavens, right? Um, Galileo was using refractory telescopes, uh, meaning that basically they were telescopes with lenses. Um, Herschel used, uh, primarily, uh, is famous for using um, reflecting telescopes. So these are telescopes with mirrors. And he basically came up with ways of polishing his own mirrors for the purpose of making his telescopes, which is really a fascinating thing. And of course, he he made a bunch of other uh, discoveries Building his own tools, you know, making, making, uh, uh, basically separating light, you know, making little spectrographs uh, with with um, prisms, uh, and then measuring things uh, that way. So he he was, you know, he was guided by the scientific interest, and he was um, he was really um, MacGyver of sorts, uh, to use a you know a a phrase. so any, anyway, I don't know if that that quite answers the question. I, I you know, it's uh, I guess a polymath by any stretch of the imagination. You know, he's he's really somebody who was interested in in everything around him, and, and um, yeah, we're we're lucky that he that he was.
1: <laughs> so now we'll we'll hear some music by Herschel. Um, first, I'll play some excerpts from his um, collection of violin caprices. So these are caprices for solo violin, and they they seem like they're more studies, like maybe etude type. Little works, but they're by no means easy. And he, one of the things that I was so struck by in learning these is that he's really exploring all the possibilities, whether they're easy or not. He has he has pieces in every single key, flats, sharps, and that's that's a rare thing to see in a collection of music for violin. Usually, um, composers will will choose to write in keys and in hand shapes and patterns that are really um, suited for the instrument. And I, I don't think that this is a mistake. I think Herschel was a violinist himself. It's not that he didn't know better. I think he was really just exploring all the possibilities, which it seems like is a kind of theme for him. Um, Liani, you, you were the one who told me that these caprices are in the same book as the um, violin cello duos.
4: They are. They're in a, a hardback bound volume. Um, these and and the ones we've just recorded. And what's really interesting is the set of of twelve that we've just recorded, of which there are only eleven. Um, number six is missing out of that book. The pages are simply missing. Um, but the pages are um I mean they're not missing, they've been found elsewhere, but they're just not not bound in the volume. They are date number six is dated seventeen sixty-three. And they're on on loose sheets, but if one presumes that he wrote number six in order, you know, wrote one to five and then number six in 1763 and then carried on, that that gives us a a starting point. Although you can't tell whether he wrote them all in a in one month flat or over the period of ten years, we just don't know. There's no. He's he's quite slapdash on his um, markings. I guess they were they were written for personal use rather than posterity
1: well um, let's listen to some of those caprices and then we'll come back and talk more about his compositions and your experience playing his music um, in your recent recordings
0: the eighth's flagship, the Mary Rose, sank in 1545 with a chest full of instruments on board. Tune in on November 13 as we premiere Shipwreck, where we'll dig deep into reconstructing the sights and sounds aboard the Mary Rose. We'll talk with polymaths Alison Monroe and Peter Walker, who help tell the ship's story through music alongside featured performances from medieval ensemble
1: Trobar. Welcome back, Leonie. When we were first chatting about your experience recording um, Herschel's chamber music, you mentioned to me this whole list of ways that Herschel seemed like he was experimenting, and I'm hoping um, you can share with with our audience just a few of those that you encountered.
4: Sure. So this set of twelve, as I said, there were only eleven written. Um, there are loads of anomalies and and. Each one seems like an exercise in, in something interesting that he wanted to explore. We've called, I mean, you've called them violin and cello duos, um, which is how we've recorded them. But another interesting anomaly about these is that Herschel entitles them solo violin sonatas. But he then writes a bass line, and we had a lot of discussion about does this mean basso continuo with harpsichord or lute, for example. Or does it simply mean a cello part? Basically, we didn't come to any kind of answer. Nobody could give any definitive answer. Um, It could have been just a a mental harmonic guide for him to know where he was going with the music. I saw the bass line as a a frame to the violin's picture, if that makes any sense at all, just to to ground it a little bit in the harmony. but it would be interesting to record them with harpsichord and, and hear the difference. Another conundrum that Herschel has presented us with, many in this set. So, for example, the first sonata starts with a slow movement and then has two fast movements. But that's the only time he ever uses that format. He goes back to fast, slow, fast after that for the other, for the remainder of the set. Um, number three is interesting because the last movement he explores theme and variations with the violin part getting increasingly more complex and frenetic as it goes through Um, number five i think number five is my favorite for being the most contrary he brackets various of the violin notes and writes the word flagelletto over the top which in itself isn't a desperately recognized term for harmonics But he doesn't use any of the standard notation um, for harmonics. He doesn't use the diamond shape or the little circles. So the huge question mark is, does he want to hear the pitches of the notes he wrote? Or because he was a violinist, is this a player's guide on where to find the harmonics, which obviously sound at a different pitch? And my violinist, Robbie, felt very strongly that they were um, false harmonics. Which were discovered in 1761, which fits with the theme of Herschel really grabbing onto new inventions and exploring them and pushing them. And I felt quite strongly that they were natural harmonics, um, because there are various places where where they echo the bass line and it seems to work musically for me. But usually with harmonics, the the what's going on around it, say within an orchestra, will give you the harmonic context of which notes should come out, but of course these don't have that. So we've recorded them both ways actually, and I'll be really interested for people to listen to both versions and see which they like best and see which they think he might have intended. But it's, it's a huge question mark because he doesn't give us any definitive answers either in the way he notates it or in any kind of instructions handwritten in the manuscript. There's just nothing there. I should just say you have four
1: albums of these violin duos and because there's not a number six, as you mentioned before, number six is missing. So you actually do have 12 sonatas, but one of them is
4: it's number, number five, five the second time. To- <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Which I think so- is
1: brilliant.
4: <laughs> yes, um, yes we inadvertently completed what he, what he set out to do.
1: So, in addition to the four volumes of the violin and cello duos, you also have this album of his um, violin, cello, and harpsichord pieces, and um, it's a set. From from what I understand, it's a set of three pieces, of which you recorded two, and I'm hoping you could share with our audience why that third one is is uh, saved
4: for a future recording project. Absolutely. I, again, this completely harks back to Herschel exploring um, new technologies and and really pushing the boundaries because the sonata we didn't record is written for an instrument that we simply didn't know what it was and couldn't get hold of. There are various dynamic markings and various other markings within the um, score led us to believe that it was for a a particularly bespoke one-off, almost exploratory type of harpsichord. It wasn't the harpsichord that became the standard recognised harpsichord. It was one of these sort of um, experimental um, models. So we're, we're trying to track it, track one down, and we think there might be one in a museum somewhere that if we're allowed to get hold of it, um, we will certainly record this last sonata, but it, it doesn't fit the mould of what he's used in other harpsichord writing.
1: It's- very cool. I really look forward to hearing, hearing that. So we're about to hear a piece from your recent recording. Can you um, introduce that for us, Leonie?
4: Sure. We're going to hear the second movement from the Sonata Number no. 1 in G Major, and it's an allegro, and you'll find it on Volume 3 of our four set. <laughs>
0: Delease celebrates the release of two new CDs this November. If you're in Northeast Ohio, you can join us November 3 through5 for several free and ticket events marking the release of the Highland Lassie, a Scottish Baroque program, and Noel Noel, a gorgeously recorded disc of holiday favorites. Or be sure to catch our upcoming podcast episode Spotlighting the Highland Lassie that drops on November 27th. Visit ledelise.org for details.
1: Thank you all so much for being here today. This has been really fun to talk about this, these connections between music and astronomy. And even though we've been focusing on the past, this the curiosity about music and space and sounds and space is definitely not over. Um, even as recently as 2021, um, the Perseverance uh, rover captured sounds of um, wind on mars and this is something that it's just fascinating to people
3: Uh, absolutely um you know sound of course is what we sense when a type of wave hits our ears right Um, but there's many different types of waves in nature and so the thing that nasa has done in addition to of course what you mentioned mars 2020 the perseverance having literal microphones to listen to the atmosphere um, on mars what, what um scientists have done with some NASA instruments is to take measurements of other types of waves or oscillations and turn them into sound and a a specific one which actually is a nice connection to everything we've been talking about because it comes from Voyager 1 um, and the Voyager spacecraft um, well actually it was Voyager 2 but the second the second Voyager was that was the only spacecraft ever to visit Uranus which was the planet discovered by Herschel so that's one um, Voyager One is in interstellar space, meaning it is now outside of the solar system. Um, and what what they've done is taken measurements of basically how the density of electrons in that space, which is obviously very low, but nevertheless you can you can get a sense of how those electrons um, vary in space um, with electromagnetic, um, you know, oscillations, basically um, radio uh, detections, and those um, those oscillations are at frequencies that correspond to what we hear for sound, um, you know, for sound waves. And so, and it's it's a pretty straightforward translation to take those measurements and turn them into sounds. And and they sound, you know, eerie in a sense. It's it's uh, you hear all these funny pitches that go up and down. Um, and in a sense, that's the sound of space. Even though, literally speaking, that that's not a thing because space is is mostly a vacuum, and so you don't have these pressure waves that are a- actually sounds. Um, another nice, you know, interesting connection is that, is that Voyager, the Voyager spacecraft also detected, in a very similar way, detected signals that were turned into sounds uh, around Jupiter, uh, of these things called whistlers, um, which we know from Earth. Um, you know, whistlers occur in Earth, and they're basically a response of the upper atmosphere to lightning um and so it turns out that that uh, the voyagers detected lightning on on jupiter um and so we can actually we, you know, correlate those things so you know in a sense it's all connected but i but i especially like the voyager connection because um it, it links everything we've been discussing together in a nice way
1: and there's one more voyager link to cover <laughs> which thank you for bringing us there um not only where was the voyager detecting sounds but the voyager brought some sounds from earth on its mission and um so in the late 70s when they were preparing this mission carl sagan uh chaired this committee to um send some sounds from earth in with with these spacecraft to wherever they end up what's so beautiful to me is i've been reading about the process and about all the things that they considered putting on these records and all the contributors had some really kind of profound things to say about why it was important to send music and how we're trying to communicate to, let's say, another, in, some intelligent life form picks this up and wants to know about Earth that music is really the thing that will communicate who we are as, as beings and the range of emotion and, um, you know, technical ability and, and things like that. It was just, it's so kind of validating for us as musicians for music to be acknowledged in that way. The last piece that we'll hear on the episode is a movement which was included in that golden record. There, there were proponents, people advocating for the record to be mostly Bach, or just include as much Bach as possible because that is what says the most about what we can do and who we are and the range of emotions. But they settled on, included a lot of other things, but this one piece, um, this violin piece by Bach made it on there. So I will be playing that um, at the end of the episode.
4: I love the idea that um, there's an apocryphal story, which I hope is true, That you were talking about uh, people advocating for a holy bach uh, disc and that other people were saying no that would seem like showing off which i i rather like that story (laughs) i hope it's true um i mean music is widely acknowledged to be the international language requiring no explanation no um learning or education of any kind of Uh, any kind, speaks across traditions, across seas, across ages, across preconceptions, across any kind of um, prejudice um, known or or unknown. It it just washes all of that away and speaks to us at the most basic of levels um, and, and drills straight into the emotion, almost bypassing the head, which is what I love because then none of the rest of it that we get caught up with um especially at the moment it seems none of that matters and you can and and you have a direct connection with somebody through music and and that's the only thing that matters and it's the only and it's a truth well for me anyway
2: uh, I think Leonie summed it up very beautifully I uh, teach the the idea of the musical spheres in my music theory classes, and when you ask me to to sort of sum it up, I think. Well, one obvious fact about the music of the spheres that uh, Juan alluded to briefly, but we we could maybe expand on, is that that there is no sound in space, or at least uh, you know there are no pressure waves uh, that we would experience as sound. So. Why bother learning about the music of the spheres if it's just wrong? And uh, in defense of the idea, I would say that uh, I think it's worth studying the music of the spheres, not because I'm trying to convince anyone of a geocentric uh, model of the solar system or anything like this, but because the idea of uh, order, sympathy between different uh, ways of, of hearing or sensing. So uh, the kind of wonder that, that uh, humans just sort of naturally feel when, when confronted with uh, the cosmos, and the wonder that we naturally feel when we're confronted with music. These things have deep connections. They have had deep connections for many scientists throughout the, the history of, of science. Not only Galileo and Kepler, but uh, also people like Newton and Euler wrote about music theory and had interesting things to say about music theory. And it, the we often think of music and science as being very different branches of knowledge. But But in the Pythagorean view, they were much more intricately linked. And I think there's some interesting inspiration that we might draw from that, uh, both as as musicians, but also as just sort of modern people or as perhaps even as scientists.
3: Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, Speaking specifically about the Golden Records, um, I think... You know, there's many things about that that are really beautiful. But in addition to to music and and um, language, I think part of the idea was to tell a story about Earth, right? And so there's sounds, not just animals, but natural sounds recorded uh, for you know for some some future civilization to listen to, perhaps. Um, but the, the intention is, is, again, to tell the story of, of Earth and then to tell the story of humanity. And of course, the fact that music is that, is that story, I think says a lot in the sense that, um, you know, music is, is sort of the culmination of human achievement, or one of, one of the culminations of human achievement, alongside science, and astronomy, of course, is, is sort of uh, emblematic of that. And uh, that relates very closely, of course, to what Charles was just saying. Uh, you know both music and astronomy are these um, disciplines that at their core have awe you know, awe of the universe and, and, and a desire to, to understand it. Both of, the, uh, of these disciplines really really um, display the best of humanity. Um, and we did really well, I think, <laughs> with Carl Sagan uh, leading it's not a huge surprise, but we did really well in sending that as sort of the emissary of humanity uh, into, into interstellar space.
0: Have you listened to Lady DeLise's other podcast, Music Meditations? Music Meditations combines poetry and music to bring soul-soothing and life-affirming art into your day. Featuring classic and contemporary poetry by Northeast Ohio writers, along with curated performances from Les DeLise's live performance archives, each bite-sized episode concludes with prompts for mindfulness or guided listening. To listen, search Music Meditations wherever you found this podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Salonira. This episode was created by me, executive producer Deborah Nagy, Associate Producer and Guest Curator Shelby Yaman, and Hannah DePriest, our script writer and special projects manager. Our guests were lutenist Charlie Weaver, scientist Juan Laura, and cellist Leonie Adams. Support for Solanira is provided by the National Endowment for the Arts, Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, the Ohio Arts Council, and audience members like you. Special thanks to Michael and Wendy Yaman and an anonymous donor for their sponsorship of this episode to Robert Morris and Patricia Hanley for their sponsorship of artist Shelby Yaman, and to Salanira's season sponsors, Deborah Malamud, Tom and Marilyn McLaughlin, Greg Nosen and Brandon Rude, and Joseph Sapko and Betsy McIntyre. This episode featured musical performances by Shelby Yaman, Charlie Weaver, and the UK-based Dionysus Ensemble of works by Michelangelo Galilei, William Herschel, and Johann Sebastian Bach. A one-hour filmed version of this episode is available at salonera.org, where you can also get full performance details and learn more about the music and information shared in this and any episode please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show.